When we come to John 17, we are seeing the continuation of Jesus' sort of private and personal ministry. Uh, we remember we talked about the fact that after chapter 12, Jesus sort of finishes his public ministry, and he starts to lean into a more personal kind of intimate interaction with his disciples. Uh, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, it's a lot of just very private and sort of intimate conversation with his disciples. Now as we come to 17, we see Jesus praying. It's not the only time we see Jesus pray, but it is the longest recording recorded prayer we have of Jesus, and it gives us a glimpse into the heart and mind of Jesus, both uh, knowing that the cross is looming, right? We know that within hours, Jesus will be arrested, and he will be, uh, he will be crucified. In this prayer, we're having a chance to, to glimpse something of Jesus' heart about his own position, about what's going on in the life of his disciples in light of what's coming, and then he also will pray, and we'll look at this next week, he also ends up praying at the end of this prayer uh, for those who will become believers in the future, which includes all of us, by the, by the extension through the work of the disciples, you and I have become believers, those of us who are followers of Christ, and Jesus kind of, kind of sees us in advance at the end of John 17. But it is this beautiful encapsulation of the heart and mind of Jesus in this moment. Last week we looked at the first five verses where Jesus essentially prays for himself. He talks about the fulfillment of his assignment, the glorification of God. Now in this middle section we'll see Jesus praying for his disciples and next week we'll see him praying for those who will believe in the future. In this middle section there is this sort of incredible opportunity to hear Jesus first. We'll break it up into two sections. But the first part of it, verses 6 through 10, are essentially Jesus praying about the disciples. About the disciples. He's talking about them. He's just said at the beginning, I've accomplished the work that you sent me to do. And now as he thinks about his disciples and he, and he talks to his father about them, he declares a couple of things about them that are the result of him accomplishing his work. Jesus is praying and he's talking about them and and, and the response of Jesus when he thinks of his disciples is actually, it's really beautiful. He says this in verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I remember uh, when I first moved to L.A. County, when we first moved to Long Beach, uh, I got a job working at a church there called First Baptist Church of Lakewood. And within a couple of months, we, we moved there in May, and within a couple of months, uh, they, they came out and said, oh, you know, we're sending our kids to camp. And in particular with the juniors, like the fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, we're sending kids up to Forest Home to their like Indian village. The kids sleep in teepees. We got a bunch of kids going, but we don't, uh, we don't have enough leaders. We don't have enough counselors. And I thought, you know, like I'd been living at Hume I've been working at a camp for nine years. I was like, I know camping. I know how to take kids to camp. Like, I should totally be a counselor. I've got a fourth grader. He's going to go to camp. Like, I'll, I'll volunteer. I'm new at the church. Like, this would be a good job for me to kind of get my feet wet, jump in, and start serving. So I signed up to be a camp counselor at Forest Home, uh, living in a teepee with like 10 fourth graders for the week. Um, 
pretty much the worst week of my life, right? I don't, I'm trying to think about, I hadn't, I've had some minor surgery, but the, I think that was worse. Uh, I went up there and you guys, it was off. I, like, I used to think my kid was a brat. And in contrast with these other nine kids, my kid was awesome, right? It like changed my perspective of my own child. Every day uh, they would give the counselors like an hour break. You only had one hour to yourself and that was an hour... Uh, I assume they thought you'd go out into the forest and sharpen sticks to take your own life. That was the only thing I was thinking about doing. Um, but but there, there, was a, there were no Wi-Fi, no cell service, none of that. And I just, I mean, you guys, I hated everything about being a counselor to fourth graders. I was like on the verge of mental and emotional breakdown. So I would hike down into main camp. If you know Forest Home, they've got like a little snack shop. And I'd hike down there and they had, a, uh, they had one cell phone, right, down there. And I'd hike down there and I'd put in my change and I'd call my wife. And I would basically just complain for an hour. I used my whole hour to be like, the kids aren't nice. They're mean to me. They don't listen to anything I say. I, one of them stays up all night and stares at me, right? They're stealing my stuff. They, you know, like they smell weird. I don't think these kids have ever taken showers, right? These are not my kids. I didn't ask for these kids. I don't want these kids. I want to come home. I do not like it at camp, you know? And my wife is just like, no, you got to stay. You, you're like the leader, so just stick it out. Every day I would hike down and complain about these kids that had been given to me because I felt like they wouldn't listen to me and they wouldn't pay attention. And I just, I like, I, I just wanted to get out of there. It was a really, really difficult week. Uh, hopefully none of your kids were there, but... <laughs> You know, who knows? When I think about Jesus essentially calling his father from his assignment on earth, and I think about what we know about these disciples, how many times these disciples have had to have the same thing repeated to them? How many times Jesus has had to say, hey, knock that off, or pay attention, or why are you freaking out, right? All of these things, I can imagine a scenario in which if I was Jesus, and aren't we all glad I'm not, but if I was Jesus that I would start my high priestly prayer by going, man, these people you gave me are idiots, right? The people you gave me are very difficult. They don't seem to be picking up what I'm putting down. They're not paying attention. They're jealous. They're selfish. There's envy. They're always kind of arguing among each other. Like, get me out of here. But that is not what we see in the heart and tone of Jesus towards his disciples. In fact, Jesus talks about his disciples in three distinct ways. And I don't want to spend a ton of time there, but I want you to see it because this gives us a glimpse into the heart of our master for us. Those of us in the room who are the disciples of Jesus, it's actually really encouraging to me to hear how Jesus talks about his followers. He starts by talking about the fact that we belong to him. That we're his belonging, right? He says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. He says, these were your people, and you gave them to me, and they are mine. They belong. He first talks about us in terms of belonging. He talks about his disciples in terms of belonging. That we are his. We're not outsiders. We're not outcasts. Even with our flaws, and even with our mistakes, and even with the ways in which the disciples don't fully understand everything he's declared to them. He says, you gave me these people, and they're mine. They belong to me. I love them, right? Not only does he talk about belonging in this opening section as he's talking about them, but he also says this in verse seven. He says, now they know that everything you've given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. 
Jesus not only talks about them belonging, but he talks about them believing. I like the fact that as, as he's, um, he's already prayed in the first five verses, I've accomplished the mission you sent me to, to do. Now in verse six he says, I've made manifest your name, or I've revealed your name. You'll remember if you were here last week that we talked about the glorification of God, and that the glorification of God is not about us making God glorious, it's not about us adding to his glory, that God is infinitely glorious in every category. You and I don't make him more glorious ever, but what we have the opportunity to do, when we talk about glorifying God, what we're talking about is increasingly and, and, and uh, progressively revealing truths about God that have always been true, right? That in our declared praise, in our private worship, in our prayers, in our interactions with others, as we live a life dedicated to living and loving like Christ, we reveal truths about God that have always been the case. That is what glorification means. Jesus says, I came and I revealed to them your name or I made manifest your name. And, and just so we're clear, in the Bible, whenever it talks about the name of God, it's never just talking about his literal name. It's not just talking about Yahweh or Adonai or Abba. There are a lot of different names for God in the Bible. But particularly in the Old Testament, the idea of the name of God was associated with the totality of his nature and his character. To understand the name of God was to see the whole of who God is. Jesus says, I have come, and in my life and in my sacrifice, I have made manifest your character, your nature, your name. There are a lot of examples of this in the Old Testament we could turn to. Uh, in fact, lots in Deuteronomy, lots in the Psalms. But just to give you one example, Psalm, 20, Psalm chapter 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The psalmist there is not saying we trust in the fact that we know his name or we trust in the fact that we could write his name or that we have learned it in, in Hebrew school. What he's saying is we trust in the wholeness of who God is, his name is representative of his nature. Jesus comes and he says, I have revealed or I've manifested your name to your people. We're going to see a being in his name sort of woven through this prayer. But here he says, first they belong, then he says they believe. Back to John chapter 17 verse 7, he says, now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, that they have believed that you sent me. He talks about them belonging and he talks about them believing. As I was studying this this week, I was reminded of the verse, some of you may remember when we were studying John earlier, in John 6. Remember John 6 is the chapter where Jesus goes from having thousands of people following him to having like 13 people following him at the end of the chapter, right? And we talked about sort of the rapid way in which people left him because of the things he was teaching, because he wouldn't give them a free lunch and whatever else. But if you remember, at the end of John chapter 6, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, what about you? Are you going to leave me as well? John chapter 6, in verse 67, Jesus says uh, to the 12, he says, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus was declaring these truths. He was doing these miracles. He was explaining for anyone who would listen who he was and what that revealed about the nature of the Father. And there were whole hosts of people who saw Jesus and heard him and watched what he did and said, eh, no thanks, and walked away. 
But the disciples of Jesus are those who in hearing his testimony and seeing his witness are ones who say, we believe this. We believe that he has the words of eternal life. We believe that he is the son of God. We believe that he is the name of God made manifest. And so as Jesus prays to his father, he says, I've accomplished the work. I've made manifest your name to these who belong to me that you gave me. He talks about their belonging, and they have believed in your word. They've believed that you sent me. They believe that everything I have, you gave me. They have heard your word, and they've trusted it. He talks about belonging. He talks about believing. And then last, here in this opening section, he talks about them achieving. And this is, this is profound. Look at verse 9. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. The last thing he says as he talks about his disciples is that he is, present tense, glorified in them. He doesn't say, I will be glorified. And once they get their acts together, once, you know, once I've died and risen from the dead, once I've ascended, eventually I think there's the potential for these people to reveal the truth about me and for me to be glorified in them, right? He doesn't say that's something that will happen. He looks at these guys, all of them kind of misfits and all of them, none of them the ones who probably would have won the popular vote for disciples, right? And he says, I am glorified in them. I am glorified in them. I love the fact that Jesus says this to the Father, who already knows that. Why is he saying it? He's saying it because he wants them to know that they have glorified him, that he's glorified, that he's been revealed in them and by them. There's a thing called a secondhand compliment. You know what a secondhand compliment is? The way a secondhand compliment works is um, if I... uh, you know, if, if I were to say, oh, you know, uh, if I were to say, Rick, you know, Rick, um, Rick I'm going to pick on you in the back here. You know, hey, Rick, you do a great job. You're, you're such a great husband and you're a great leader. And I really, I just really appreciate you. Those things are all true. Um, he, he might think if I said that to his face, like, well, Darren's just being nice. That's just what you do. You just pay a compliment or whatever. But if I was to come over here to Matt and I was to say, Matt, have you met Rick? Rick is a great leader and he's a great husband. He's a great father. Like, he's, I'm so thankful he's in our church. If Rick were to hear about that through the grapevine, that I'd had that conversation with Matt, it's a whole other thing, right? It means a whole other, have you ever had that happen to you where you hear that somebody else has been having a conversation about you outside of your presence? That's called a secondhand compliment. I actually make it a point in my life to pay as many secondhand compliments as I can because they're powerful. It's powerful to look at somebody else and go, you know what? I was in a room where people were saying awesome stuff about you and your love for Jesus and your love for God's word or whatever. It's amazing to be able to pay a secondhand compliment. Essentially what Jesus is doing by allowing these disciples to hear him say, to the Father, I am glorified, is he's allowing them to listen in on a conversation. He's not saying that to them. He's saying that to the Father, and they're within earshot, and they're being able to be affirmed in it. Jesus says, these people belong to me, and they believe in me, and they have achieved my glory already. And there's this beautiful encouragement, I think, even for us, right? Even for us in this room today who are his disciples, to recognize that Jesus sees us as his own. That he is aware of our belief and our trust, our faith in him. And that we have the potential, even though we're weak, even though we're broken, even though we sometimes blow it, we do have the potential already, even as much growth as we still have to do. 
that we have the potential to glorify God. Now, he prays these things for them, or excuse me, he prays these things about them, and then in the second half of the part we're going to look at this morning, verses 11 through 19, he prays for them. We believe that this is a prayer of consecration. Jesus knows that he's going to the cross. He knows that he will die, that he will rise again for the sins of mankind. He will then ascend to the right hand of the Father, and he will then intercede on our behalf, right? That Jesus will be interceding. And so what we see in the second part of this is in anticipation of Jesus' return to the right hand of the Father, he's praying some specific things for the disciples. Now before we talk, there's five of them I want you to see in the text there. Before we talk about those, I do want to back up really quick and look at verse 9. Because for some of you, verse 9 might be a little bit of a deal that kind of sticks in your guts a little bit, right? Does it, does it feel weird? Verse 9 to you, let me read it to you one more time. He says in 9, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I don't know about you, but the first time I I sort of read over that, there was a thing in my head that thought, like, this is kind of a jerk move by Jesus, right? Like, I don't say that very often. Like, you don't think about Jesus doing a jerk move, but it seems kind of rude that he's not praying for the world. Why, Why is he praying for his disciples here? His disciples belong, and they believe, and they've achieved his glory. Why is he praying for them? He needs to be praying for the people in the world who do not believe, who do not belong, who are not glorifying him with their thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes. Doesn't he care about the world? It seems like, priority-wise, he should be caring more about the world than he cares about his disciples. Well, if that's the way you're feeling, and that maybe is the way you're reading what Jesus says here, where he says, I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for my people, I I would like to remind you and reaffirm for you the fact that when you take the whole context of Scripture, and the whole context even of the Gospel of John, Jesus cares deeply about the world. So this is not evidence of Jesus discarding the world or not caring about them. In fact, in John 3.16, it says God loved the world so much that he gave the only son he had that anyone who believes in him won't perish but instead would have eternal life. If we even skip down, and now I'm jumping ahead to next week's text, but if we jump down to verse 20 and 21 of John 17, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Here's what I want you to see. When Jesus says in 9, I'm not praying for the world, it's because Jesus understands that the way to best care for the world is to equip the church. We talked a few weeks ago when we were studying about about the way the Holy Spirit works, that it doesn't make sense for us to pray, oh, God, send your Holy Spirit and convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment because the Holy Spirit doesn't do that in the life of the world. He does that in the life of the church and that he has sent the church to be ambassadors of that message, that the way the Spirit of God convicts the world is through us. Not independently. Jesus here, when he says, I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying for my disciples, is essentially saying the way in which we love the world, the way in which we care for the world, the way in which the world receives this redemptive message is not by me praying to the Father, hey, reach all the lost people that are out there, but rather by me praying for disciples that then my disciples will carry the message to the world, that they will be unified that they will be sanctified, all these things we're going to look at in a second, and as a result of the transformation in the life of the followers of Christ, the love of Christ for the world is put on display, not independently, but through us. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is doing here. It's, It's what he's setting up in the whole chapter. So he prays five things for us, and these five things he prays for us, we'll look at them in the time we have this morning, 
they give us a little bit of a glimpse of what that intercession might look like. Have you ever wondered, like, what does it mean, right? Uh, when we were in Hebrews, when we were in studying Hebrews together, in Hebrews chapter 7, uh, verse 25, it says, Consequently, he, that's Jesus, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We understand that Jesus today, right now, is alive, risen from the dead. He's alive at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. He is our advocate. He is praying for us. But I, I don't know if you've ever stopped to think like, what do those prayers look like, right? Is Jesus just at the right hand of the Father going, man, I just hope Darren has a nice day and he doesn't get a flat tire and his shrimp is properly cooked or whatever? Like, what, what, what does that intercession look like? Well, the nice thing about John 17 is it, is it gives us a window into, it gives us a glimpse into what his ongoing intercession looks like for us. Because he prays it in a place we can hear it, we then can say, these are the things that are in Jesus' heart for his disciples, and when he continues to intercede for us, Romans 8, by the way, that backs the same thing up, Romans 8, 34 says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is in interceding for us. What does that intercession look like? It's not just that he's praying we'll have a nice day and that we won't fight with our neighbors or whatever. He's praying specific things that are, are revelatory of his heart for us. And we see them in John 17. Let's look at them systematically in the time we've got. Back to John chapter 17. Look at verse 11. There are two things in verse 11. He says this. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. The first thing he prays for us is that we would be kept in his name. Remember, his name isn't just a title. It's not just, it's not just a, a proper noun. His name means the fullness of his character. It means the fullness of his purposes. It means the fullness of the nature of God. He says, keep them under that banner, under that umbrella. Preserve them. That word keep means to guard or to preserve, to protect he says, preserve them. So the first thing he prays for the disciples and then by extension that he intercedes for us is preservation under the banner of the name of God, which isn't just a title, but is meant to encompass the whole of who God is. Keep them in your name. Keep them rooted in the truth of who you are and what you're doing and why you do what you're doing. Preserve them in that. Why? Why preservation? Why does he pray that for us first? Because we're not leaving the world. We're staying in the world. He's placed us here to be ambassadors. He's not ejected us. He's not removed us. And he isn't protecting us from interaction with the world. We're not meant to live in isolation. We're allowed to be in the world. And in fact, we're assigned to be in the world. And yet in that context, he prays for the Father to preserve us under the umbrella of the nature and character and purposes of God. Does that make sense? Keep them. God, keep them. Preserve them in your name. And that preservation then leads to the second thing he prays. Also back to 11. He doesn't just say keep them in your name. He says in 11, I am no longer in the world. They are in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. You see, the idea of being preserved or kept in the name of God 
is it, it leads then what to our unity. He prays for preservation and he prays for unity, that we would be united. You see, because we're in the world, and we've talked about this before, but every time John, the writer here, the gospel writer, every time he talks about the world, he's not talking about the planet, right? He's not talking about the globe or the earth. When he talks about the world, he's talking about the, the great mass of humanity who is living in rebellion to God's purposes, right? Who are living outside the umbrella of his name. He's he's not taking us out of the world, and he knows that in the world there will be all kinds of temptations for us to lean into the world. That's why look down at verse 15. Down in verse 15, he, he talks about preservation here also. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That preservation is also keeping us from the evil one. It's important to note that he doesn't say, keep the evil one from them. He doesn't say, hey, you know what, they're going to be in the world and I want them to be united under the banner of who you are and just keep Satan away. Keep wickedness away. Keep evil away. That isn't what Jesus prays. What does he pray? He prays that the Father will preserve us and keep us from the evil one. Why? Because I think most of the time the work of Satan, the work of of, of evil that happens in our world as we're in this world, right, the work that happens is actually incredibly deceptive and a lot of times we don't see it. In fact, it's kind of funny. There's a weird thing that happens as we get closer to Halloween. Um, it's funny to watch Christians start to kind of bristle and freak out, right? Because we get close to Halloween and people are like, oh, it's a super evil day. Can I tell you? There, there is no context in scripture where Satan acts with glowing, beady red eyes and sharp, pointy teeth, you know? There's no place in the Bible where Satan acts with, uh, you know, the black robe and he dances around a fire and kills chickens or carves pentagrams into his arm or whatever. That's not how Satan works. And yet we tend to be really terrified of things that look like that. You know why we're terrified of things that look like that? Satan is trying to distract us with things that have nothing to do with him. The way Satan works in every case in the scripture is to entice people with what is beautiful. To entice them with what is lovely. To entice them through their pride and through their flesh. It's never the glowing red eyes and the sharp... By the way, I'm doing a a Monty Python and the Holy Grail thing. You recognize the sharp pointy teeth? No? My people, you hear? My mind, yeah, okay. The pointy teeth, right? That's never the way Satan works. What's enticing to us? It's to have more money. It's to be more beautiful, to be more liked, to go on better vacations, right? Those are the things that Satan will use to lead us away. So Jesus says, preserve them under the banner of your name. Preserve them in your name, all that you are, that they may be united. Why? Because it's so easy to divide. It's so easy to divide and to be led away by the evil one into things that look beautiful. I doubt there's anybody in this room who finds, you know, chicken murder and pentagrams appealing, right? But what do we find appealing? Stroking our own ego, the pleasures of this life, inflating our own sense of pride, satisfying our own desire for pleasure. Those are the things that are enticing. Those are the tools of the evil one. Jesus says, preserve and protect that they may be one even as we are one. Unity is important. And Jesus gives us an example of where that falls apart, right? He says uh, in verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. How is it that you you and I are unified? We're unified in the name of God. In the wholeness of who he is and his nature. What happened to Judas? And Jesus uses Judas here as an example. It's a good example, but it's a crushing example. 
Judas was walking with Jesus just like everybody else. He was interacting with Jesus just like everyone else. And at some point, Judas took his eyes off of the truth of who Jesus is, and he put his eyes on the truth of what the chief priests were saying, or the truth of what he wanted compared to the reality of who Jesus was, or maybe he got his eyes on those 30 pieces of silver, and he was enticed, and he was broken from fellowship, broken from unity, not because they had a disagreement among themselves, but because he took his eyes off of Jesus. The, the key thing that Jesus prays here in unity is that we would be united in his name. And that's as essential for us this morning as it was when Jesus first said it. I read a great quote from A.W. Tozer this week uh, in his book, uh, The Pursuit of God. And I'm going to read it slow because I kind of jumbled it up in the first service. So here's what he says. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Think about that. He says 100 worshipers, I'll read this part again, 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ are in heart nearer to one another than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. He says social religion is perfected when private religion is purified. What does that mean? We talk about that a lot around here, don't we? We talk about the fact that our gatherings aren't, aren't about us gathering together for our mutual preferences. That we're not gathered in this place because we like the same stuff or because we're interested in similar things or because we share a lot of the, the same common interests. That we're gathered together because Jesus is the king of the universe. And when we all tune our hearts to the name of Jesus, we are actually more unified and closer together than we would be if we said, hey, how many of you like the Dodgers or how many of you like whatever? If we unified around these other peripheral things, we're actually not unified at all. But what unifies us is our singular rallying point behind the name of God as revealed in Christ. That's where unity comes from. Jesus prays, keep them, preserve them in your name that they may be one as we are one. We've seen what happens when, when, when the, the son of destruction falls away. He gets his eyes on the wrong thing. He continues, there's three more here I want you to see. Not just preservation and unity. Look at what it says in 13. He says, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The third thing Jesus prays for us, that he prays for his disciples, is that we would be fulfilled in his joy. Not just joy, his joy. And that word fulfilled means crammed or stuffed or packed to overflowing. Jesus prays that you and I would be under the banner, kept under the banner of the nature and character of who God is, his name. And that because we're all singularly tuned to who he is, we would then be unified. And then in our unity, by extension, we would be crammed full of his joy. And what is his joy, by the way? This is Jesus praying the night before he will be crucified. In full knowledge that what comes next is for him to be betrayed and arrested, to have his beard torn out, to be nailed to a cross, to shed his blood on behalf of people who for the, for the great majority of humanity will spend the next 2,000 years using his name as a curse. And in the midst of that knowledge and that awareness, knowing that the cross is looming, Jesus is filled with joy. 
joy. And he prays that our joy would be the same, that we would be crammed with his joy, in fact. You see, the reality is that following Jesus is not easy. Following Jesus is hard. Jesus himself said that in Matthew 10. He says, it will be hard. They'll call you names. They'll beat you up. They'll drag you in front of their magistrates. Your kids will try and kill you, and your parents will try and kill you. He says, they'll call you the devil. All men will hate you because of me, Jesus says. He knows that it isn't easy to, to be in the world. He says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they have your word. And so what Jesus prays is that we would be kept in God's name and united under that banner and crammed full of his joy, his kind of joy that can even look at the looming cross and find peace, radiant peace in the midst of difficulty and sacrifice. He says that they would be one and that they would have your joy. I've said these things, verse 13 that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. There's a few more I want you to see. Look at 14. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He goes to great lengths to say here, hey, you're, they're going to be in close proximity to people that don't care what they believe, that people don't, that don't believe the same things they do, because I'm not, I'm not pulling them out of that, I'm leaving them there. And as a result of that, even though they'll be unified, they'll be kept in your name, even though they'll be crammed full of my joy, they have to keep their sights on sanctification or consecration. It simply means being set apart for holiness, because it will become easier and easier for us to just blend in the world. We, we talked, what was it now, two weeks ago, about unforced appeal rooted in unblushing oddity. That to actually live and follow Jesus, to believe the things that we believe, makes us a little bit kooky, right? It makes us peculiar in the world, and there will always be this temptation for us to just kind of round off the edges, to kind of whittle it down to something less than holiness. But we have been called, Jesus prays, that we would be sanctified in the truth. And he says, your word is the truth. He says to his Father, sanctify them. The word sanctify feels complicated, but it's not. It's just the progressive transformation of God's people into his likeness. That over time, God is doing a work in us to make us more and more like him. Do we have bad days? You bet we do. Do we have days where we come off the rails a little bit? You bet we do. But we belong, we believe, we can achieve his glory, and he is praying that we be sanctified in his, in his truth, and his word is truth. I think it's also important here to note this distinction about the word. Jesus says your word is truth. There's one sense in which Jesus himself is, is the clearest articulation of God, right? It says in John 1, he is the word. But I think it's actually really striking. In our culture today, it's really striking that Jesus says in verse 8, look at John 17, 8. Jesus says, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you. Jesus doesn't say, I've given them the concepts that they'll need to explore, He doesn't say, I've given them the general idea that they'll need to expand upon in their own context, right? He doesn't say, oh, I've given them some decent sort of moral principles that they can pay attention to and figure out how to apply in their milieu, right? He says what? He says, you have given me words and I have given them those very same words. We live in a world today where there are all, you can find them, we can find them in this room, right? People who will go, we don't have to pay attention to the words that are written here, just sort of pay attention to the overarching concepts. 
just get the ideas. You don't have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You don't have to believe that the Bible is inspired. You don't have to believe that the Trinity is actually the way God is. Just, it's just meant to sort of paint a picture generally of how to live and how to be. Jesus says, you gave me words and I gave them those words. You and I need to pay attention to the words, not just the concepts, not just the application points that we like, not just the principles. This isn't a book of principles. It's a book of words, words that God gave and that have been revealed. And when God gave us these words, he knew we'd be reading them in 2019. Right? There are many people who go, well, yeah, you know, it made sense when it was written in the first century. People got it then, but we can't possibly understand it because we're living in 2019. Did God reveal this or not? If he revealed it, then he also knew the time period in which it would be studied and kept. Jesus says, let them be sanctified. He says, let them be preserved. Let them be united. Let them be crammed full of joy. Let them be sanctified, progressively transformed to holiness. And lastly, he prays that we would be dedicated. Look at verses 17 and 18. This is of John 17. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. By the way, that word consecrate and sanctified, that's the same word in 19. Consecrate that they also may be consecrated. Or Jesus could have said, for their sake, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified. What's he saying here last? He says, I'm sending them the very same way you sent me. The sentness of Jesus was a big deal to him. Have you seen it as we've studied John together? As we've studied John together, Jesus talks about his sentness. John, the gospel writer, talks about the sentness of Jesus, that he was sent. Jesus here in John 17, 18 says, just like you sent me. Well, how did God send Jesus? Well, Philippians says that though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be clung to, but he made himself nothing. He emptied himself he became nothing and he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. That's the way Jesus was sent. You and I, Jesus says here, are, are being sent in the same way to turn away from our own lives, to turn away from our own position, to turn away from our claims, to turn away from the things that we would cling to so closely and instead to run the race that's been set before us, right? Jesus says, I'm sending them. What is he wanting here? What's he praying for? He's praying that you and I will be as dedicated to his mission and to the fulfillment of that mission as he was, that we would live sacrificial lives because he's sent us the same way his father was sent. As we finish this morning, the, the point of application for me as I walk away from all of this, because it, it's, it's very moving, that Jesus himself was sanctified or consecrated so that I could be sanctified, so that I could be set apart for holy, holiness, that I would be dedicated to the same mission, that I would have that same sense of sentness. I mean, the reality is for each and every one of us, he's not just talking to vocational pastors and shepherds. He's not just talking to people who work at church. He's talking to people who are accountants. He's talking to people who are architects. He's talking to people who are librarians. He's talking to people who are stay-at-home dads. He's talking to people who are police officers. It doesn't matter what you're gifting and you're calling, all of us are sent and if you haven't stopped to pay attention to the fact that it was important enough to Jesus to pray that you would really stretch out in that sentness, well, what does that look like for you? What does it look like if you're a shopkeeper, if you're a waitress? What does it look like in your context? You're a full-time student, or maybe you're a professor at a school. It doesn't matter what you do or what your gifting is. What matters is that regardless of that particular gifting, you are sent just like I am sent. We're all sent equally by Jesus. And so we have to be paying attention to go, well, what does sentness look like in my context? 
What does it look like for me if I'm a professional counselor? What does it look like for me if I'm a taxi cab driver? It doesn't matter what you do for a living or even if you're unemployed. What do you do with the time you have? How are you living into that sentness? Jesus prayed that we would be preserved, that we would be united, that we would be crammed full of his joy, that we would be sanctified, and that we would be dedicated, dedicated to his purpose. So what does that look like? These things were important enough to Jesus that he prayed them in his consecration prayer for us. Are they that important to you? I think a lot of times as Christians, we come to the Bible wanting to know what God wants from us. And maybe you've even come into church today hoping that I'm going to tell you what God wants from you, right? Just give me a list of things to do. What does God want me to do? Well, he wants you to, you know, clean up your language and stop smoking cigarettes and don't watch bad movies. You know, like, it it would just be so lovely to have a list of things God wants from you. Can I tell you, God doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need anything. He's perfectly sufficient in and of himself. God has never needed anything from us. But there are all kinds of things that God wants for us. There are all kinds of things that God wants for you. Have you thought about those? As a taxi cab driver, as a pastry chef, as a stay-at-home mom, have you thought about what God wants for you? Jesus wants you to be preserved in the name of Christ, to be united under that banner, to be crammed full of his joy, to be increasingly conformed to his image in sanctification. And he wants you to be dedicated to your sentness, to the very same mission that Jesus himself was sent on. When's the last time you thought about what Jesus wanted for you? Don't get so wrapped up in what he wants from you because honestly, he doesn't need anything from us. He sets some expectations, but he doesn't need anything from us. But there are all kinds of beautiful things he wants for us and it is well worth paying attention to those. Would you pray with me as we close? God, I pray that you would stir in us a hunger for the very same things that you wanted for us. That we would join you and be aligned with you in synchronous prayer that looks like this. We thank you that we belong to you and that you create belief in us and that we have the potential to glorify you. And God, we join you in praying that the Father would unify us under your name, filled with your joy, looking more like you and committed to the mission you've sent us on. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.